This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Garden Within, where the war with your emotions ends and your most powerful life begins. Written and narrated by New York Times best-selling author Dr. Anita Phillips. Available now everywhere. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold-cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied. Summer's closer than you think. So are Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. With up to 40% off appliance special buys. Like an LG mega capacity top load washer and electric dryer for just $5.98 each. That'll save loads. But hurry, just like summer. They'll be gone before you know it. Today is the day for doing. With Memorial Day savings now at the Home Depot. More saving. More doing. U.S. only Waspa's last gas dryer extra. See store for details valid through June 5th. Thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the Ann Campaign and the Crux and the Call.com. Uh, Justin, how are you doing this week? I'm doing pretty well getting the week started. You know, last week I had the opportunity to go to the Council of Christian Colleges and University Conference. Uh, I really got a chance to talk to some of their provosts and vice presidents about. Uh, helping students to engage social advocacy from a biblical lens. And so we had a really good time, some very thoughtful and faithful people down there. Uh, glad to see that they are helping our young people through kind of maneuver through all of this sociopolitical uh, stuff that gets thrown at them all the time. That's fantastic. Pretty good to be down in Florida at this time of year. I, I spent the weekend like Illinois and <laughs> Minnesota <laughs> and Indiana. So you definitely got me on the weather front and we we love the ccu Justin, we got a lot to cover this week as we talked about last week we're going to try and continue catching up on some of what happened while we were out uh there's a lot of new news <laughs> uh, uh coming out so we're going to jump right in and i don't know if there's i think we could do worse than talking about the green new deal that was rolled out at the beginning of the month by uh Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts. They introduced a Green New Deal resolution that sort of put meat on the bones of the Green New Deal that Ocasio-Cortez and others had been talking about really for much of last year. But now there's there's actual legislative uh, sort of language, sort of a, a a resolution that lays out the goals and some of the specifics of the Green New Deal in in a way that we could wrestle with. And a lot of folks have been wrestling with it. There's been criticism that it's too sweeping, uh, that it's unrealistic. J- Justin, what, what do you think of first the, the idea of a Green New Deal, the problem 
of the crisis of climate change is significant enough to warrant, you know, sweeping legislation that touches so many areas of our life and of our economy. And then, and then what did you think of the resolution that rolled out on Thursday? Yeah, well, I'll start by saying this. I think Christians should take creation care seriously. Now, we should care about the environment. We should make sure that we are being good stewards of the environment. And I'll talk personally. I don't know that I've always been intentional about that in the way in ways that I should be. And there's more that I can do today. So I think all of us have a responsibility to make sure that we're being responsible when it comes to the environment. Uh, we know that, that, that God uh, put this under a, a kind of our rule and we need to make sure that we are using it in the way that we should. Uh, as you said earlier, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, also known as AOC. And let me tell you, when they start using your initials uh, and you're known by your initials nationwide, you know you are doing something to really capture the attention of Americans. But she's kind of been leading the Green Deal with a few others, as, as you noted. Um, and when they presented this resolution, I, I'm not quite sure that it was um, fully cocked. I don't know that they put their best foot forward, although some type of legislation in this regard is necessary, I would say. I don't know if it's ready, uh, what they presented is actually ready. So the resolution that they uh, presented on February 6th uh, was really meant to achieve what they wanted to do in the United States was achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions within the next 10 years. Now, this was a very ambitious uh, proposal, and some would say that's the point, right? Maybe this is more something that we're trying to reach. It's aspirational, but they wanted to get it out there to kind of set the standard. Now, Stanford Stanford analysts found that it would take about $14.6 trillion to meet our energy demands through zero emission energy sources. So this would be very tough to reach. Uh, but again, it may have just been aspirational. Now, uh, the critics would say, the critics of this uh, proposal would say that it, it conspicuously ushers in American socialism by nationalizing the American economy. So it didn't just include things that would lower our uh, emissions. It also included universal health care, uh, universal basic income, uh, high, free higher education, a federal jobs guarantee, a family living wage, and so on. So they threw all that stuff in there. And the explanation for that was because we're going to have to make such drastic changes in order to allow American families to have some stability, we're going to have to help them out on the other end. Now, The Economist came out and said that this was a deeply unserious proposal to tackle climate change. Uh, not even all Democrats or, or progressives were in agreement about it, especially more establishment Democrats. Nancy Pelosi referred to it as the green dream or whatever they call it. Michael Bloomberg said that it should offer more realistic solutions and not bring things that are really just pie in the sky. Um, and I think there's something to that. You know, I kind of find myself in the middle of this debate a little bit in saying that, yes, something needs to be done. I just don't know if this was all the way thought out. And I think the folks who proposed the new Green Deal may want to take a look at what's happening in France. Right. So in France, what they were trying to do is cut down on uh, is cut, you know, the, the climate emissions as well by raising taxes on gas. And they raised taxes on gas so high that really what they were trying to do is make sure that people had to use public transportation, that it was just prohibitive to to use gasoline and, 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 and all that stuff. But what they ended up doing is not realizing that people who lived in suburban areas or more rural areas, there wasn't transportation infrastructure. So even if they wanted to use public transportation, 
they were they they didn't have the ability to. So what happens is getting to work and just driving your family to everyday errands, you end up gro- going broke doing that. And so what the people said was they just pretty much started rioting, right? They pretty much just said, no, we're not going to take this because this wasn't thought through. One of the things I think would help Michael here with this new Green Deal is not having everyone be from the East Coast, right? You should have people from the South who are looking at this legislation. You should have people from the Midwest who have different types of uh, transportation infrastructure. Uh, Because what you don't want to do is have a national policy that is really just set for New Yorkers and people who have a lot of public transportation when a lot of other people don't have it. Also, you want to make sure that you're not setting up a situation where only a small percentage of Americans can actually afford to comply with what you're trying to do. So we need to realize that in some ways the technology really isn't isn't there yet. What technology we do have is expensive. And so we need to have green policy. But I think we need to think it through a little more. Yeah, I think those are good points. I think Senator Mitch McConnell really sees an opportunity here. We've talked before about how what a brilliant sort of tactician he is. Uh, and he's said that he's going to force this resolution to a vote to sort of get Democrats on the record on this. I think he expects he'll be able to pry off uh, quite a few Democrats to oppose this, and that'll only weaken the endeavor. You know, I do want to point out this actually, what they rolled out isn't legislation and they're, it, it's, it's a resolution. And, you know, we, we have these things uh, called messaging bills, which are pieces of legislation that people put forward that everyone knows will never pass, but they sort of use legislation as a way to sort of force the argument, move the Overton window that there is a certain level of manipulation about it that in that way, I actually find the Green New Deal resolution kind of refreshing. You know, it's kind of saying, here, we're going to put some meat on the bones. This is what we think is going to have to be necessary, but we're not at the stage of legislation yet. We want to see if we could have a conversation in Congress about whether we can agree on some general principles and some general aims and then then we'll get to work on legislation. You know, universal health care, that, that's going to take uh, its own bill. You know, they're really proposing a suite of legislative vehicles. You know, th- this is just a, res- a resolution. It's meant to provoke the conversation that we're having. And I do like the fact that they did it as a resolution, that they didn't put out legislation that they knew wasn't going anywhere, but that they just wanted to be uh, provocative. Th- this is what resolutions are for. Yeah, and I would say even with that, even with that uh, good point, and I'm glad you made that point. There's a reason why they pulled it from the websites, right? Because even if you're bringing a resolution, people are looking at it as potential legislation, and you do want to move the conversation. But I think this was so undercooked that you find that even some of o- uh, AOC's people, number one, they pulled it from her website. Her people were going on on uh, these talk shows and basically saying that um, actually not even telling the truth about what was in it, because some of the stuff that was in it was just the language. It was just so bad and and such a turnoff. And now you're in a situation where Miss McConnell can come and say, hey, well, well, let's vote on this because it was so outlandish in some areas that I think it really could become an issue in 2020. And where I where I see where I see what you're saying in, in changing the conversation and being somewhat provocative. There's a level of responsibility and credibility that goes into this also if you want to be taken seriously. 
Now, did they pull the resolution or did they pull the the frequently asked questions document that typically accompanies? Well, they pulled the frequently asked questions document, but that's what actually explains the resolution. Those are the questions that are going to come up to explain the resolution. And so when you pull that down, I think you probably could have held on to it for a little bit to make sure uh, that it was something that would be credible and not actually come back to to get you. Yeah, no, I mean, I think think a a part of the way this is going to play out is – I think there's more work that could have been done internal to the Democratic Party. You know, part of me wonders whether part of the strategy here is to uh, for, you know, these justice Democrats, the sort of uh, Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, Lauren Underwood, that part of the party, whether part of this, uh, whether they don't really mind if some Democrats uh, vote against the resolution as forced by McConnell because they'll, they'll primary these folks. <laughs> you, you know, part of me wonders whether th- this is meant to sort of separate the quote unquote true progressives from the rest of the party. And so I, I think that's going to be interesting. I agree with you. There's a lot of fodder here for uh, that Republicans are going to take full advantage of. McConnell is going to be able to force a vote in the Senate. I, I would suspect that. Nancy Pelosi may may not may not be too eager to bring this up for a vote in the House, which will probably save uh, some of these newly elected Democrats a, a, a tough a tough vote. Uh, but it, it, it will be interesting to see this conversation unfold. Interesting to see how AOC's uh, legislative strategy develops and whether what made her campaign so effective a sort of more activist way of doing campaigns, whether she continues to try and fully translate that into Congress or whether she starts modifying her approach for the benefit of her colleagues. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. But the question, the other question we have to answer is what does this do for the 2020 Dems who are in the Senate? Right. So if they're forced to vote on this, are they going to vote for it? Are they going to vote against it? And I think the other thing that I would say when you put out this type of resolution you want to make sure that you're putting people in a position. Yeah, you may you may want to kind of smoke some people out, but the folks that actually do want to work with you and get something done, you don't want to put them in a position where now they have to completely bail or something like that. So I'm not sure that I buy into that it was uh, as thought out as it should have been. We will see how these some of these Senate Democrats who are running for president react. Uh, will they vote for it? Will they find some way to kind of get out of it? But I think as is, it may be very difficult for them to vote for or really just give Republicans, like you said, a way to really pound them uh, in the general. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I just know, remember her first week in Congress, AOC was joining climate change protesters in Speaker Pelosi's office. And so, you know, we'll, I think we'll see how well thought out it is, but her willingness to sort of do things outside of the will of the establishment is pretty established. All right, when we get back, we're going to talk about President Trump's latest immigration moves. We'll talk about Amazon, and we're going to talk about uh, Jesse Smollett and what it says about uh, the state of our, our discourse in our country. We'll be right back. This is the Church Politics Podcast.
All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Justin, on Friday, President Trump held an event where he seemingly invoked his powers as president under threat of national emergency uh, to move forward with the wall. Now, he's, he's held some other White House ceremonies where he's announced things and they haven't quite moved forward as he said they would. But he, he, he said the words, this is how he said he's going to move forward. And there are some real concerns uh, about an invocation of a national emergency declaration, which is, you know, one of the president's unilateral kind of unchecked powers in a circumstance like this, which is to fulfill a campaign promise. Now, of course, President Trump and his supporters will say that this isn't just about fulfilling a campaign promise. This is about the safety of the nation. And yet in his press conference, in one of his sort of offhand remarks, President Trump himself said that he didn't need to do it this way, that he could build the wall regardless. This is about uh, just speeding up the process, which kind of undermines the the emergency part of what he said. Justin, do you think that this is just another Trump norm breaking type of thing? Do you think this is a you know some people are of course saying you know this is a constitutional crisis? What do you think of the dynamics here? Yeah, I'll say this. I've said it before. From a legal standpoint, I think this sets a terrible precedent. Uh, that isn't to say that he doesn't have the power to make this declaration, but I think the president coming in and basically saying when he doesn't get what he wants from Congress saying, well, I'm just going to declare a national emergency is problematic. And I think Republicans would do themselves well just just to think about what if a Democrat did the same thing with the gr- new Green Deal, right, or something like that. Uh, it's just not a precedent you want to see happen this isn't why the emergency should be used. But let's just talk a little bit about the declaration of a national emergency. So his ability to declare a national emergency is not explicitly stated in the United States Constitution. Uh, But most legal scholars believe that it is authorized through the president's executive powers generally. Now, in 1976, Congress did pass a National Emergency Act to limit that executive power after Nixon's Watergate scandal. And so what they basically did was add some procedures. They said that the emergency must end, uh, I think, a year after it's declared, and that to keep it going, the president would have to submit some type of renewal uh, documentation. The other thing people need to understand is, you know, what constitutes an emergency is not narrowly defined. So basically, the president can declare an emergency when the security of the American people is at stake, right? Not hard to make an argument for that. Uh, Again, very broad. This gives the president the power once he declares this emergency to, you know, he can seize property. He can uh, organize and control the means of production. He can seize commodities. He can assign military forces abroad. He can institute martial law, seize and control uh, transportation and communication and so on. So we can do all these things. Um, which allows him to say, okay, it's a national emergency on the border. I can now use the U.S. military to build the wall, right? So that's where we are. Now, this will be challenged. It will likely be challenged in court, probably in the Ninth ninth Circuit, which is on the West Coast. So don't be surprised if you hear that uh, it's been challenged and one of the lower courts shoots it down and then it it gets shot down again in the... um, Uh, in the appeals court and then goes to the Supreme Court where they will make the final decision. There's a reason that people bring this in the Ninth Circuit because the Ninth Circuit is more progressive, usually when they want to challenge something of 
trumps, they're going to bring it there first. Uh, so don't be surprised if you hear that or if it gets shot down initially. That's not the end of the ball game whatsoever. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot going on in here. I think it's a bad president. I think this is a time where Republicans need to stand up and say, if you really do care about the Constitution, if you really do care about uh, the rule of law, if you don't want people to think that that's just hot air, this is the opportunity to stand up and say something. And so you're looking at the Sasses, you're looking at the Rubios, uh, you're looking at Lindsey Graham, who has already said that he he should go ahead and uh, build the wall. But this is when you, you when you win and gain credibility. This is when people see where your integrity is at. And so hopefully people step up and say something. I don't think they'll be be able to stop him because he. Even if they put some legislation to stop him, he probably can veto it. And because the the power is so broad, he may be within his within his authority technically to get it done. Yeah, right. And either way, the Rubicon's crossed. You know, even if the court, you know, strikes this down by technicality, you know, because he's uh, his, his comments weren't tight, and because he kind of undermined the the whole the whole pretense of of an emergency declaration. This is the problem with with norm breaking. This is now going to be something that's on the table, and the advocacy groups are going to be able to pressure future presidents on for whatever their issue is that amounts to an emergency. Trump tried to do it with his wall, but right. The problem with this isn't that he's declaring uh, an emergency. It's that the whole thing is a farce. We just need to be serious about it. I feel like Pandora's box has already been opened uh, with this one. I agree with you. You would hope that especially, you know, some of these libertarian uh, you know, small government conservatives who are concerned about, you know, executive power would step up. But Trump, once again, has sort of showed that his will to power is uh, something that's going to, you know, affect our politics beyond his his presidency. All right. Well, we're, we're going to take another quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about the latest news regarding Jesse Smollett. Uh, this is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. We thought we we should discuss this latest issue. Uh, you know, in my mind, it's still breaking news regarding Jesse Smollett. And, you know, I, I think just at the top of the segment, we want to be clear. You know, we're talking about the latest news reports. I personally still want to see full confirmation from the police department that this is, in fact, where they're going. So far, we just have sort of news that recent insights have changed uh, the course of the investigation. But we need more information here. I just want to state that out front. But where things stand now, uh, just as as a refresher for for those of you who, who may not have been following this case, Jesse Smollett told authorities he was attacked on January 29th by two men who were, quote, yelling out racial and homophobic slurs. He said that one attacker put a rope around his neck and poured an unknown chemical substance on him. He did later interviews, including one on Good Morning America, where he elaborated on these attacks. He said that the attackers were were shouting that this is MAGA country, make America great again country. You know, it was something that sent shockwaves, particularly through the entertainment 
community. So I should say Jesse Smollett is is an actor. He's on Fox's Empire, where he play, uh, he is both he identifies as gay himself. He plays a gay character on Empire. This was huge news. You saw people like Ellen Page, the actress Ellen Page, go on Colbert and make passionate, uh, stark comments that were all jumping off of this attack and this idea that that if Jesse's not safe. Who can be safe? Well, over the last week or so, uh, first in sort of leaked reports that the police department pushed back on because it seemed like they didn't have enough evidence to even confirm things yet. But then over this weekend, the idea came up that actually uh, Jesse's attackers were hired by Jesse to do the attack. It appears they are two Nigerian brothers found in a Home Depot buying the rope that was said to go around Jesse's neck. And and there are police confirmations, uh, not that this 100% happened, but that in response to these reports, they have said that their conversations with these two brothers have moved the investigation in a new direction. This story needs to play out, although, you know, it's now been you know, a couple days and, and there there hasn't been anyone to sort of uh, no authorities have stepped in to say, you know, hey, hold, hold on to your horses. This isn't true at all. So it seems like this is at least an avenue they're exploring. I guess my question for you, Justin, is just what what does the mere idea that we're considering that this would be a possibility uh, that, that someone would do this and that it would be effective, at least in, in changing the conversation and driving a narrative. What does that say about the state of our country? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to just limit it to this time. Right. Um, because I think there are always narratives that kind of compel people to do things that they wouldn't normally do, uh, believe things that they may not normally believe. Now, to your point, this investigation isn't over. The Chicago police have 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 not charged uh, Smollett yet, but based on the reports that they've given, so there's been police reports, there's been testimony that's kind of that we know came from the brothers. It is very much looking like uh, that it's possible that Smollett actually made this up and orchestrated this. That's at least what the two witnesses are saying, right? Um, as we also know that there was no, you know, the the Chicago Police Department was not able to find the attack on all the cameras that they have, you know, they had several cameras in that area and were not able to find the attack. There's other small details that we do, you know, that we do know. Uh, and I, I just want to start off with this, you know, um, I think this does have to be a time of prayer and a time of grace. If, if Jesse Smollett did make all this stuff up, uh, he's going to need our public mercy to some extent. Now that doesn't mean that he shouldn't be punished, but I would ask people to be conscious of how far we go in humiliating someone. Right. Um, and that goes for me, too. Um, I don't want to act holier than now. I'm sure uh, uh, privately, maybe some of us could have been more gracious. I do try not to kind of put those humiliating things out uh, uh, publicly. And so we, it's something that we all need to keep in mind and just be prayerful about, because let let it be handled by the law. I don't think we always need to go out of our way to humiliate someone if, in fact, this does if this is true. So just something to keep in mind. Um, it, you know, it, it's tough because what we saw was once this once this information came out, I completely understand why people would give Jesse the benefit of the doubt. 
right? We don't think that it's every day, or at least we don't want to think that it's every day that someone's just going to make something like this up. So giving him the benefit of the, of the doubt, I think makes sense. The problem was that people took it and because it fit a certain narrative, completely ran with it, completely started coming out with all of these allegations and all this name calling. And I'll just give you a couple examples. GQ magazine uh, came out and said the racist homophobic attack on Justice, Justice Smollett is the far right is far right America's end game, meaning that everyone who's on the you know uh, far right is looking to to beat black and gay people. That's really their end game. That's really what they want to achieve. Irresponsible. You had actress Ellen Page, who basically blamed Vice President Pence for the attack because he's a non-affirming Christian, right? Um, we had several presidential candidates who kind of dove headfirst into this con- controversy and may have a little bit of egg on their face because they just made very strong statements about what this said about America and what it said about, you know, even not explicitly what it said about people who support Trump or people on the right just wasn't called for when you don't have all of the facts. So what we do know is that racism and bigotry is real and that such allegations should always be taken seriously. I think we should all be able to agree on that. I haven't I haven't heard anybody that I think is credible disagree with that. Um, And I think we need to be quick to show compassion and quick to show concern. So when you hear something like this, again, giving it the benefit of the doubt, uh, being compassionate about and being very concerned and vigilant about what happened is reasonable. I think all that is fair. But someone has to explain to me how jumping to conclusions and coming with all these allegations and all this name calling benefits anyone in these situations. I mean, you literally had people and people close to us. You literally had people being called racist, bigoted, uh, if they didn't immediately immediately accept the storyline and accept everything that was coming from the left, all their conclusions, then you're automatically in this in this space. And it's like, well, there are some I mean, from the beginning, there were some questionable things about this story. Uh, The other thing that becomes problematic about this narrative and where we are today is that the far left's narrative has been for a while, if you disagree with us on, on a few different issues, and these are specific issues, then people will die, right? And this just isn't a realistic or a fair narrative in most cases, but it is effective. And I think you saw that narrative come into play once these allegations kind of hit the ground and hit the, hit the airwaves. Because people want social proof for their narratives, Right. Because we know that when something happens that kind of gives credibility to your narrative, now you can use it and say, hey, look, I told you so. Right. So people are looking for that. And I think we all look for that. And I think we all have to be vigilant about how we avoid allowing our narrative take us into fantasy land. And that's really where, where this comes out. Without the facts, you know, without knowing the facts, we can allow our narrative kind of to take us off. And it's not grounded in really it doesn't have a basis in reality sometimes. Now, this isn't to say that this could never happen, but if we jump on something too quickly, we can allow our our narratives really to get out of control. I think that happened in this case. We just ran with it. I think some publications ran with it. Certainly some influencers really ran hard with it to enforce their narrative. And it's just an unfortunate situation. But I hope everybody would pray for Jesse, whether you agree with him or not. I was skeptical from the beginning because it just fit the narrative too well. You're in downtown Chicago. 
you know, it's it's below. I think it's 10 below some crazy. I mean, it, it was just a lot of things that are like, ah, that's hard to see happening, especially with all those cameras and all that. But um, what I do hope is that we can heal and that we won't use this to say we don't believe people who really go through these instances. But we will be uh, have some level of, of, of critique and not just accepting it and running with it before we have the facts. Yeah, that's a good word, Justin. They one of the persistent problems, not just in this case, is just there's no accountability mechanism. And I'm not talking about for Jesse. I'm talking about all the all the all the people who launched again used this incident, which seems like it may have been fabricated itself, to kind of bully people and to kind of manipulate the conversation. And you, you get the sense that they do it again, <laughs> you know, if, if the opportunity presented right. itself. It's just tough. We talk about a lot on this show. At the end of the day, there are people out there that are, you know, looking to take advantage of situations that occur in the only real way to, to weaken them and to, and to push back on that uh, is, is to have a l- level of sophistication, a level of media literacy, a level of uh, humility and some some good old fashioned biblical grounding uh, that you and we and all of us have the character in us to have that gut check moment before we we jump on something like this. We're going to see as this develops. I will be interested to see, especially from some of the presidential candidates, especially, you know, it was Stephen Colbert who had Ellen Page on his show for that. It'll be interesting to see if he and I think of Colbert as a uh, as a pretty reasonable guy, be interesting to see if, if he revisits that moment and has any any thoughts about about how this played out. All right, we have one more segment for you. We're going to talk about Amazon and what happened in in New York. Quick break. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Last week, uh, after a period of real criticism, after it was made sort of public knowledge that New York was offering about $3 billion of tax incentives and tax breaks to Amazon to have the privilege of having Amazon's business headquarters, second headquarters, uh, in New York. Last week on Thursday, uh, Amazon announced it would no longer come to New York. That that sort of the situation had just become too hot. The reaction to this has just been fascinating. It's been a mix of some people celebrating that folks held strong, uh, I guess, and that, that this was that New York isn't going to be giving all of these tax breaks to corporation. And then others, of course, have pointed out that this is going to cost Queens in particular 25,000 jobs and the economic value of having, you know, such an economically productive company like Amazon located in your city. You saw uh, some people calling uh, AOC again and you know, I think this is going to be a theme, at least in the short term, AOC's name sort of popping up in all kinds of different stories, but calling the progressive left in New York, Amazon killers. That was the front page of the Daily News. They said, shame on these so-called progressives for rejecting 25,000 high paying jobs and billions in taxes tech biz would have brought to city. 
But then again, you, you have you have folks on the left saying, look, this deal that we keep giving the corporations just for the honor of having them in our city is, is rotten for consumers, rotten for taxpayers. Th- this story is just so illustrative of the emerging debate about capitalism that we really haven't had in this country on a national level for a long time. It was kind of put to bed by the, by the Cold War. And so uh, it, it's so interesting to see something like this conversation move into front pages and coffee shop discussions. Who won and who who lost on this, or did everyone did everyone uh, make out okay? Uh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I, I would say from the looks of it, uh, Mayor De Blasio lost. He's pretty upset. I think Governor Cuomo feels like they they took a loss. They're upset. And you know, if you look at the numbers, it looks like most New Yorkers supported this deal. But I think it's I think it's complicated though. You know, to your point, this is a debate that has to happen. I think or I think corporations like Amazon probably need some regulation, probably need to be checked a little bit. I think we need to think about what, you know, what they're doing and the power that they have, what that means for for America. You know, so so to me, Amazon's first mistake was kind of all this pomp and circumstance surrounding HQ2, right? And the HQ2 initiative was them creating an, uh, you know, a new corporate headquarters and providing the chosen city with thousands of well-paying jobs and millions of dollars in new construction. Th- that's a that's a big deal. But the way that they went about it and they had all these very desperate cities really begging them for this HQ2 and just promising them the world, I think it was a bad look in how it ended up because it seemed like they might choose a city or a town that really needed industry that really needed these jobs. And it just didn't end up that way. In a lot of ways, they oversold it and they did what we can expect them to do. I don't even know can blame them to do what we can expect them to do what's best for their shareholders. But they sold it as if we want this to be huge for America. That's that's not exactly how it ended up. And so I do think they deserve some criticism. Now, the deal that they had with New York included about $1.5 billion in incentives, as you said, 25,000 new jobs again. And the progressive activists come out and say, hey, the deal, because of these tax incentives, this isn't a good deal. This is really just corporate welfare for Amazon, who I think everybody would agree doesn't need any welfare. Uh, but I think the situation is a, it's just a little more complicated than that. Um, I don't know if you saw it, but uh, de Blasio, actually, Mayor de Blasio actually went on Meet the Press to kind of voice some of his concerns. And he did so very shrewdly because he's in a hard position right now. So he primarily blamed Amazon. Right. So he said this is Amazon's fault for walking away from the deal, walking away from, you know, working families and things of that nature. But he also knew that he had to blame progressives who he said didn't really understand or at least misrepresented the deal. Now, he didn't come down too hard on them, but he says they kind of misrepresented the deal. De Blasio was very skillful because what he didn't want to do was look like he was on the side of corporate interests, right? So he had to shoot down Amazon. I'm sure he is upset with Amazon, but he really kind of targeted Amazon uh, and the 1%. He didn't want to be seen as being on their side. But he also knew that he needed to criticize progressives. And so he snuck that in a little bit. I think he repeated probably 10 times that he was a progressive, but that he felt that progressives could look for equality and opportunity, which I thought was actually a pretty pretty good point. I'm not a huge fan of de Blasio, but I saw what he was saying in this regard. And this, this, is a, this was a tough conversation because 
when I watch some of the video of what some of the progressives, so the folks who shot this down, when I watch what they were saying about why they did it, it did make me think either they were misrepresenting it or didn't quite understand it. So in one video, someone is saying, hey, you know, that $3 billion that was going to Amazon, we can now put that towards, we could use that for our teachers, we could use it for this and for that. Right. What they don't understand, and I have a background in this. So I, I used to work at the Atlanta Development Authority. I was the uh, assistant general counsel. So I've seen these deals. Don't I don't necessarily agree with all of them, but I know how they work. And what that misunderstands when you say we could use this $3 billion somewhere else, you don't understand that the $3 billion isn't there. All it's saying is that you're not going right. to tax Amazon if they were here to that point, right? So whether it's 1.5 or whatever, they wouldn't be taxed on that money. But if they don't come to New York, it's not like you have that money to put it elsewhere. And that's the part where it scares me that the, some of the people that are running this that are in very high positions don't necessarily understand how the deal works or are really trying are really misleading people. So whereas I do believe that there should be some regulations, I kind of feel like on this one, they picked the wrong battle. Right. Because I don't think the battle when we're talking because, you know, the AND campaign really wants when we talk about the economy, we really want more attention paid to uh, the middle class, working families and the poor. We think that is very important. But I don't think it serves their interest when you say, hey, we just don't want this large corporation here. That's not necessarily the battle. I think it's I think it's a little more uh, uh, complicated than that. I think what you want to focus on is making sure the corporations are, number one, providing the jobs. Number two, making sure you have affordable housing, making sure the employees are paid fairly, making sure the benefits are good and making sure the community concerns are heard. So it's not about saying, no, don't bring your jobs. Don't bring this is about, no, if you do that, we want to make sure that it's a setup to where you're not changing, you know, you're not adding to gentrification. We have affordable housing. And I think that should be the target rather than just a general, no, we don't want you here. Right. I'm one of those people who says, you know, I think so much of this is 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 painted with a broad brush. Some of these deals with these big companies and these cities are bad. But you got to look at the deal. Right. Not all of them are bad just in general. And I think with the messaging of it, it may be hard to get that out. And so they don't even try. But there's good deals and bad deals between cities or you know municipalities and governments and some of these large companies. And you got to look at the deal to just automatically say that it's it's always bad. I think you're missing the point. Make sure you get the affordable housing. Make sure you get all those things that I said, but make sure the deal is fair, not just get rid of the company. And so I think maybe they had the wrong target. Although I think at the end of the day, when we look at these deals, we have to look how it affects poor people, how it affects uh, working families. And if that's where they're trying to get at, I think they need to sharpen their target a little bit, but uh, it's going to be an interesting back and forth though. One of the interesting wrinkles in this is that uh, it seems like a lot of the, a lot of the people who were presenting themselves as the voice of the people actually didn't reflect the people on this question that, that actually a majority of folks in Queens in the place where Amazon would be located were at least okay with, uh, you know, you could say looking forward to having Amazon, there with them and the opportunities that would present. And, and so, you know, in addition to everything you said, it, it really should encourage us to be sophisticated in the way that we that we are attentive to the disenfranchised, that we are attentive to the needs of, of local people in the community and not big interests. I mean, we've, we've talked about this on the show before. I, I just think it's been one of the most compelling, unique, sort of interesting 
storylines of the last, you know, three, four months. I expect that we'll see other sort of iterations of this kind of competition between, uh, you know, an aggressive corporation and how they're affecting taxpayers. Yeah. And I think it points also again to, are we going to settle for we won, right? Or are we going to say, well, what did we win and what does that exactly mean? Uh, because if you're just looking for, hey, we won this, they're they're gone and we won. Well, what did you lose and what exactly does that mean? I think for new Christian politics and when Christians enter into these conversations, it has to be deeper than just we won. Um, yeah. And just, you know, as you said, just be is a little more complicated than that. Make sure we're looking at the details and not just a general narrative. For sure. Well, Justin, do you have any closing words before we sign off this week? Yeah, I would just say, you know, when it comes to the Smollett or any of these other instances of all this stuff's going on where you see this is this is division divisive. I would just ask Christians out there to see how you can help mend this situation. It's not by denying that there's racism and bigotry. It's not by name calling and all this other stuff. How can we actually be a, a, a mechanism of healing? How can we be that bomb that helps heal these divisions instead of just adding to it? And I have to do a better job of that. I hope everyone uh, listening will commit to trying to find the space to actually make things better, make sure issues are addressed, but addressed in a way that's responsible and that kind of adheres to the facts. All right, fam. Uh, I think that's a good word to close on. Always love having you with us. We'll see you next week. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can yeah. you handle it? I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fame. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied. Summer's closer than you think. So are Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot with up to 40% off appliance special buys like an LG mega capacity top load washer and electric dryer for just $5.98 each. That'll save loads. But hurry, just like summer, they'll be gone before you know it. Today is the day for doing with Memorial Day savings now at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only while supplies last gas dryer extra. See store for details valid through June 5th. You'll do it right to grow the best garden you can. Lowe's does it right, too, with savings on miracle Grow potting mix with fertilizer to help you get growing. And grow plants twice as big versus unfed plants. Pick up a 50-quart bag now for just $10. Plus, get Bonnie 2.32-quart vegetables and herbs, three for $10. For a garden that's worthy of showing off, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 6-5 while supplies last U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and lead of gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease.